Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Frank, a sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in today's podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the ASES, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a very special episode on a hot topic in all of medicine, including orthopedics, sports medicine, and shoulder and elbow surgery, and that is social media. Now, the very words social media can often bring up a visceral response for some, and it really can be a love-hate relationship type of thing. That being said, social media is part of all of our lives, from educating patients and peers, to marketing one's practice, to learning about events of the world in real time, to even getting notifications about this very podcast. And so love it, like it, hate it, or anywhere in between, social media is part of our daily lives. For this podcast, we've invited several guests who are experts in social media. They post, they know about it, they talk about it, their patients and peers are on it, and so they're here to share their wisdom and expertise with us. First, we have Dr. Patrick Denard, a shoulder and elbow surgeon out of the Oregon Shoulder Institute in Oregon. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Next, we have Dr. Paul Sethi, a sports medicine surgeon out of orthopedic and neurosurgery specialists in both Connecticut and New York. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rachel. And finally, last but not least, we have Dr. Matthew Pfeiffer, a shoulder and sports medicine surgeon out of Santa Barbara, California. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rich. All right. Well, let's get right into it, guys. Do all of you use social media? Let's start um, Let's start with Matthew. Do you use social media on a regular basis? Um, I do. Um, and ironically, the great uh, chairman, Patrick Denard, just asked me to give the social media talk at San Diego shoulder not two weeks ago. So um, I am all studied up on social media from giving this talk just to preference this. And also I do use social media. I probably put in approximately, I'd say 30 minutes a week just on my practice social media alone. All right. And Patrick, how about you? What is your thought on, or do you use social media? Is this part of your, your life, whether it's through practice or personal or both? Yeah, I'll tell you just, you know, kind of like a little background, I never had a personal account for social media. You know, I was never on Facebook or uh, back then. I was very sort of anti the whole scene. Um, I kind of backed into it via my practice uh, marketing and the marketers thought it was a good idea to do. So I started getting kind of exposed to that as I went along. And, you know, at this point that's grown to where, yes, I have a uh, Instagram account, Facebook, and then um, LinkedIn. And uh, primarily that is just for um, business practice sort of standpoint. I, I'll do just a little bit of personal personalization on there that we can talk about later why, but uh, that's what I have currently. And Paul, how about you? Are you a social media user and is, is it just professional or is it also personal? So I think you characterize it perfectly. I have this love-hate, and it's, it's my reality. Um, I, I am a user and almost exclusively professional. I try very hard to keep anything outside of the scope of my practice off of, uh, off of what I discuss, and rarely will I have anything uh, you know, about my personal life or political at all on my account. All right. Now, let me ask you each, and some of you have already highlighted this, but I want to get really specific for our viewers or our listeners, excuse me, because many of our listeners are young surgeons, part of the ASCS or other societies early in practice. And they're thinking, should I use social media and which ones should I use? So Matthew, let's start with you. 
which social media platforms do you use for your practice? Um, mainly I started off on Facebook, I'd say about four or five years ago, Facebook's good for search engine optimization and just individual information about your practice. It gets you really high on the Google search. My favorite is Instagram for this. I share experiences of patients. I show information. It's a really great thing as in, you know, I'm about to do an AC joint reconstruction on you. You go to my Instagram account. I posted a patient three weeks ago, check them out. Um, those are kind of what I use more for interacting and marketing. I use LinkedIn for professional, for getting office staffing. I use Doximity for like CMEs and the dialer. No, uh, if you guys don't know about the dialer yet, definitely look into that. Uh, and I also um, do a little bit of the education on OrthoBullet. So that's my primarily uh, ones that I use. And what I recommend for the new guys is definitely do it. It's a great return on investment and just do it how you like to get do it. Some people like pictures, some people more like videos, some people really get into the blog. So just do what you like and go with it. Any, um, any usage of other platforms such as TikTok or Snapchat? Uh, me personally, I do not have TikTok or uh, Snapchat for professionally. At one point, I had Snapchat personally, but I actually have gone away from it. My main personal use is probably Instagram and Facebook and kind of like uh, um, we discussed earlier, I try and keep it down to a minimum for the personal side of things. So, Patrick, how about you? Other platforms, the same platforms? What are your the ones that Pretty you much. use? Yeah, I, use, I, I also have Twitter. Um, I'm not active on Twitter. The only time I get a post is if it's if it links to the Instagram because I just use the professionals. So Instagram will automatically go to Facebook and Twitter. How mine's set up, so I'm not, you know, I don't ever I don't ever touch Facebook. I just do Instagram for the post, and then it might it'll go to both of those. I don't do TikTok. I got on one TikTok one night to see what my daughter might be doing on that, and an hour blew by in bed with my wife, and I'm like, I'm never touching this thing again. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul, how about you? Are you, uh, are you, you know, active on the TikTok or are you using these other ones? So that would name you're going to have to figure that out. It's a blocked private account. Um, I'm going I'm to stick to Instagram, Twitter. And then I think there's, you know, the LinkedIn is a, is a differential. Like it's really more usable for B2B business to business sort of things. Um, and as you do development or as you work on meetings and want to, want to interact with vendors, uh, really getting into a, a sort of specific utilization. I think that's important because many business people are going to, are going to do a lot of their, their social media within that, that LinkedIn. Now, I have to add that Patrick does have an, um, he forgot to leave out your podcast, Pat. Cause yeah, it's sort of, you know, how, yeah. How broad do you consider this? Right. I mean, is, are you talking yeah. Medi, BMED, all these things, right? I mean, are they, are they social media or not? Maybe they are, you know, but yeah, they, they are under the, the heading of social media. And when I was uh, doing that talk in my search, there's essentially 13 types of social media. Uh, they range from photos, videos, business, live streams, educational blogging is one. So you do your blog. And the reason I bring that up is he has a great shoulder blog that reviews all the highlighted shoulder articles each month. So definitely look that up. I'm plugging you, Pat. There you go. Thanks, that plug. That's good. Yep. There's a social ones. There's podcasts that we talked about, disappearing content, uh, shoppable ones, which really doesn't have anything to do with us, and inspirational ones. So there you go. 
Those are all the types of social media. Well, I'm inspired by all of you. So this is outstanding. So (laughs) let me ask, and this is, I think, a question, again, our listeners um, are curious about. Do you each post your own social media posts or do you have someone do it for you? Matthew, let's start with you. Um, I do 90% of my own. At what one point I hired um, someone I work with who was like a marketer to get on my Instagram and interact uh, geographically around the Santa Barbara area. And ironically, if uh, someone's logged in under your account and you try and log in, it kicks you both off and you're locked out for like two weeks. I don't know if that still happens, but after two weeks, I kept trying to get on there to do stuff. It was so frustrating. I let him go. So here on out, uh, all my social media is my own. Paul, how about you? So I I do it all myself. I'm very worried that that you know there, I could do such reputational damage or just say something I don't want to say or just look. At the end of the day, I think the reason that I consider using social media is because I want to help and create and and sort of solidify my brand and. Most of the patients that we're all going to see are going to interview us in some way or some mechanism before they come into the office. And if I let someone else sort of help define my brand or what I am or, or who I am, perhaps it'll be a lot better, but it may not be true to true to form. And that's probably why I think the social media is important for me as an individual. And Patrick, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to echo what Paul said. So I, when I started, this was all done by a marketing company and it got very, very little traction. And it just came across as very generic, these, you know, happy 4th of July and like, you know, happy nurses day and this sort of stuff. And it was, it's sort of worthless. And so to me, it didn't end up coming across as genuine until I took over control and did it other than a a post that I tell them exactly what I want and they may, they may make it look prettier. I think that you got to be doing it yourself to come across um, genuine. And I think that what Paul said is really true. I'm not so convinced in my, we all practice in different areas, right? I mean, these two other guys are in um, metropolitan areas where I think there's probably a higher return on investment from a practice standpoint. For me, I'm in rural Oregon. I don't really find a return on investment from a practice standpoint. But I think if you're interested in sort of building your brand, and I think that's an appropriate term, and thinking about what that can be um, long term, and perhaps that's you know things like meetings or um, helping spread messages you want to help spread. I think that's where there can be value, but it's got to be you if you want to actually do that. Now, let me ask you guys. We're going to get into some kind of detailed topics in just a little bit. But say you're the patient and you're going to a new doc, be it an orthopedic surgeon to replace your own shoulder, you tore your ACL, you have your your gallbladder out, whatever it might be. Are you looking your doc up that you're going to see, say you got referred from a family friend or someone else, that's typically how many of us see physicians ourselves is we get referrals from people that we know are good or we just know of that individual doc. Are you looking up that doc on social media? You might look up their website, who they are, where they trained, et cetera. But are you looking them up on social media platforms? Paul, let's start with you. So, you know, for me as an individual, I'm gonna, it's different because I'm going to know the doctors in my community by reputation and experience. So I don't feel like I, I have to do as much of that basis. But that said, I frequently get called, as do every one of us on this phone call, I'm seeing Dr. XYZ in this city. Can you tell me what you think or what's going on? And what I'll do is I'll go on Google 
and I'll look up that doctor. And not only will I go to his or her website, but frequently I'm going to see the posts that they may or may not have made. So I'm going to get some sort of snapshot or image of that individual. I, I, one of my sort of personal gripes with social media is just because someone is a successful uh, poster or, or successful on social media doesn't really necessitate or that they're going to be a really quality surgeon. They're just a quality communicator. Um, so just because you have 15,500 followers, which I don't know is a lot in orthopedics, I got to be careful. I have like seven. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that that makes that, that, I don't want that to get mistaken with the quality of, of care that you may or may not deliver. If you have no social media presence, you, you may be a, an amazing outstanding surgeon just the same way. So, but I'll look at that. I'll look at it and see what they've said just to see if they're left or right of center. Yeah. Matthew, how about you? What are your thoughts? Will you look up a physician that you're going to see for a personal problem or for a family member's personal problem or no? And and is it important to you in terms of what your future doc or current doc posts? Um, I'll second Paul and, you know, we're in our own little kind of bubble of the, you know, physician world. So we do have in, so I'll definitely ask, you know, around the community first, but kind of like Paul said, like, say I've got a buddy, you know, in Colorado and someone's going to go see Dr. Rachel Frank and I'm going to be like, okay, let's look her up, see where she trained, see what she's posting. Um, and you know, that's from a physician perspective. Recently I, I did it myself for my own wife here in Santa Barbara when she had to see a physician. Uh, I will say knowing a little bit of statistics right now that 92% of patients, even after they're referred from their primary care doctor, will look up whoever they're referred to before they go see him to validate that recommendation. So um, I would say even, you know, take away, you know, our professional bubble, it's, it's what happens. So that's how it is today. And Patrick, let me ask you something that Paul mentioned. Do you think the number of followers matters? And I think Paul actually hit something that I wanted to ask about in just a little bit. So I'll ask about it now. You know, there are now even awards for most influential orthopedic surgeon, most influential sports medicine surgeon. And I think when those get advertised, a lot of potential patients in the real world outside of our bubble may see that as equivalent to best orthopedic surgeon or best shoulder surgeon, for example. Um, they may equate that award of most influential or most known to best as a, as a surgeon. What are your thoughts on that? Do the number of followers matter and do does recognition as a top 10 influencer, top 100 influencer matter? I think the number of followers matters on some level, right? I mean, it has to have some relationship, but you got to be careful because it's not all true. There's obviously tons of people out there who are just creating followers by buying those. For instance, you know, I've seen people on there that have 50,000 followers and they have one post with a picture of them, right? And you'll get these solicitations to, you know, pay a couple grand for 50,000 or 100,000 followers. And that's meaningless. But I think, you know, on some level, yeah, it probably, the more followers you have, the more people you're probably reaching. And then what about those awards? Matthew, what do you think? Do those matter? Is there any data on this? And I, I'm not sure myself, but do, does it matter if you're a top 10 influencer or, um, or is that just something that people have and can pat themselves on the back and say, I feel good about my posts and all that. And I'm not knocking it because again, this is a big part of our lives these days. Yeah. I um, personally haven't heard of individual rewards. Uh, there was an actual a study done uh, that was quoted as the top 100 
uh, social media influencers in orthopedic surgery. And this was done on Twitter based on Twitter activity in 2019. So there's actually been articles written on this. Um, in the professional world between doctors, I don't think you know it's gonna matter one way or the other, but how many followers you have. I do like to go to other doctors' pages and the ones that tend to have good content and educational or if I'm gonna learn something from another doc, sometimes I'll pick it up even on social media. So there's that bubble. And then when the patients look at it and, you know, if you start posting those, you know, awards out there, you know, kind of same as Patrick and Paul have said, it doesn't really mean that they're a great doctor, but a lot of times patients see that marketing and they feel that, Oh, this is one of the best doctors, kind of like the, the best doctors in America when you're in the airline and you open up and, you know, those are paid for things and everyone, you know, if you don't know, really what they are and you're just an average Joe off the street, you may take that as what it is. And so you may get more people walking through your door. So look, I'm sure that's the case, right? I'm sure look, when, when the average lay person doesn't know that on the plane, when they have that picture of knee arthritis, it sort of gaps open, you get an extra centimeter of joints, magic injection. Look, they don't, I think in the same way, when you have, you know, someone advertising the best doctor um, and they're on the airplane, look, they've spent a lot of money. They've done a calculation that that's going to give them some return on, on investment. And it's, it's sort of this you know, dicey, dicey sort of land where they're capable advertisers and, and therefore they're the, they may be the most affable, available doctor and they're going to get busier. And um, that doesn't make them good nor bad. It's just, you know, I, I think it's just something we got to be aware of. Now, let me ask you guys about specific posts, content, talking about content now. When you want to post about a specific case, um, be it a cool technique that you did or just something really exciting, and you know it ahead of time, do you get your patient's permission to post? If so, when do you do it? Before the surgery, after the surgery, when they've had some follow-up? Do you not care about that because you're not using, in theory, identifiers if you're not showing anything specific to them and it could just be anyone's x-ray or anyone's implant? How do you go about maintaining patient privacy? Um, and that's part A. Part B is, do you have patients who I'm sure have seen your social media accounts who want to be featured, who say, hey, I saw you do this. Can you post my case? Or do you have patients who tag you, say the day of or day after surgery, from a picture of them in the PACU or the post, you know, at home recovering and say, you know, Dr. Sethi, thank you. My shoulder has never been better and they're still on the block. So of course it's never been better. Uh, Matthew, let's start with you. What are your thoughts here? Um, the initial patients, um, you know, the, uh, uh, sorry, the ability to follow essentially HIPAA. Okay. So if you, you have to follow HIPAA, no matter what, meaning one, they have, you have to have their permission if they're identifiable, identified by whatever goes into that post. So obviously names, faces, even instances, um, there was like a bad motorcycle accident in Santa Barbara and another physician in town kind of got a little bit of in trouble with their hospital because it was such a, uh, predominant thing that they posted that night. I'm going into the ER to deal with a big motorcycle crash. And I think they had to take that down. So my uh, patients, I, I'll, if I think that this is going to be a good postable, or I'm, I'm even going to use it in a presentation, I'll just say, Hey, is it okay if I use your case? It's an interesting case. 
And 99.9% of the time, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's great, especially when you preface it for education, uh, giving the experience to another patient to what you're going through. You know, it's kind of how you bring it up to them. And I, I will say, yes, I have patients that say, oh, Pife, uh, are you going to put my clavicle fracture up? I just did that last week. And I said, I'm going to wait till three to six months, which is another thing we can talk about as a timeline when you should do it, because I don't think it's good to put up amazing x-rays a month after surgery and without much follow-up. It kind of, you know, it's not leading the whole tale. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it at that. Patrick, how about you? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, same thing. You got to be careful. You got to get permission for the patients. Uh, you know, initially we were kind of doing that ad hoc and getting that verbally, but we're, we're now doing that with documentation, the EM, EMR. Um, and uh, I think you can do a mix um, of different things. Um, I think you can, you know, post a mix of interesting cases, x-rays, but I think if you're trying to have an impact and reach, it depends who you're trying to reach. If you're trying to reach physicians, interesting cases are probably the way to go. If you're trying to reach patients, I think it just makes sense to put yourself in their shoes and show patient outcomes and perhaps some experiences of them, whether that's a picture or, you know, some motion that they are demonstrating or their experience throughout the recovery. So I like to do a little bit of both to kind of mix it in. Now, Paul, what are your thoughts? I've seen you and, and others, including myself on Twitter, often posting, what would you do with certain difficult cases, et cetera? And those may be cases that you've already done and you're posting it, but kind of getting the reaction from other surgeons. And I, I got to be honest, I've gotten such a good education from other orthopods on Twitter, posting difficult cases, not even in shoulder and elbow and sports medicine surgery, but just in joint surgery and spine surgery and trauma surgery. I've learned quite a bit through social media. What are your thoughts there? And do you feel as though one of your patients could potentially see what you're posting and say, hey, my doc doesn't know what they're doing, or my doc's really getting opinions from all over the country and world? What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that you raise a very important point. And, and whether you're trying to address patients or, or physicians, they're both going to see. So it would be a significant transgression against the patient, in my opinion, to not discuss that. Um, worse than that, the patient recognizes their own films and sees that there are multiple other choices that perhaps you didn't review with them. Now, now, mind you, they may be unvetted options. They may be, you know, very, you know, unusual responses you're getting. So I think you got to tell your patient, hey, look, you know, I'm going to de-identify you. And if you're showing range of motion or anything like that, well, clearly you've had that discussion. But it, it gets into some dicey ground if someone recognizes themselves uh, and wasn't expecting to be recognized. Yeah, I think for our young viewers and even our, our older viewers who are just getting into social media, I think one rule of thumb is the New York Times front page test. If whatever you post, you'd be comfortable having on the front page of the New York Times for everyone in the world to see, it's probably okay. But if you feel uncomfortable with that, you probably shouldn't post it. So in my practice, we've actually started getting, just like Patrick mentioned, documented approval from the patient for posting on social media platforms in a de-identified fashion. And we have a little dot phrase that we use in, um, we use Epic as our EMR, but we have a little dot phrase that we put in there. And then we always tell the patient, we're not going to use your name, but you may recognize your pictures. This is to educate, um, as Matthew was saying, educate other surgeons, other patients about what to expect and what might happen. And my personal rule of thumb, and I teach the fellows and residents this as they're going on to um, their own practices, is I really try not to post that day or even until we have a reasonable outcome. 
because quite frankly, everything looks good on, on day one. And, and that cartilage graft may look really sexy until they get infected or until they have a problem. And is that the case you really wanted on social media? So I have a, a, a timing rule for my own practice. Matthew, tell us, you were going to talk a little bit about timing. What are the best strategies here? Uh, timing wise for me, I, th I think anything um, is appropriate once you're kind of three months out, as far as if you're using x-rays, some people will say six months. So I think within that window is fine. You know, normally something's fairly stable between three and six months for, you know, fracture care or whatnot. If you're, if you're posting arthroscopic pictures, I think pretty immediate after is okay, you know, just to show technique and whatnot. And then obviously if you're showing patient outcome and how amazing they're moving their arm around after their AC joint reconstruction, kind of same thing. I, I wait at least three or six months. Can I bring it back to something that Paul said that I just made me think of an interesting concept I'm seeing is, so we're talking about cases being shared. And I think what you're seeing is an evolution of how, obviously how people share information, but even us, right? You said you learn things from other people, trauma surgeons, et cetera. And the traditional model was you would go to meetings and you would have a publication in print that would take, you know, research has been done. It takes six to nine months to get in print. So it's old. And now you're having this information being delivered instantly, right? And it's, it's both good and bad because it's not as vetted, uh, but yet it allows this immediate exchange. And even, you know, it's not just journals where this is happening. We're able to, if people are involved in new techniques, um, they're able to jump ahead of companies promoting things or look, you know, sharing ideas because the companies have their internal process. So it's interesting just to see this direction. And I think in the future, it's just going to continue to evolve. I mean, maybe if it's even open access publication of journals where you're just putting what your findings are, and you're not having to go through this. It's a voting system who knows for, yes, this is a good article or bad. I don't know. Yeah. Look, Patrick, I think you're hundred percent right. And the current methodology for, for publication is so antiquated and so backwards and, there was an article that just came out, and I think the 50 to 60 percent of of all sports medicine literature comes from you know 30 or 40 centers in the in the country, right? So there's a process. There's an inherent bias against certain areas. You have to have you have to have the wherewithal. And you who published, I think, what 43 papers last year, you have to have a system in place that that allows you to sort of beat the publication mechanism, or at least manage it. So this may level the playing field, particularly for international surgeons who, who don't necessarily have those same mechanisms or have an IRB in place or have, you know, $800 or $1,200 so that, you know, the journal will take their publication. So I, I love that as an idea with the risk of it being somewhat unvetted. But sites like ViewMedia are completely unvetted. And if you have the appropriate filter, then I, I think you can take away what's useful to you as an individual. So let me ask you guys, what's better to post on social media from an education of peer perspective? Like we'll talk, we're going to talk more about patient specific posts in a second, but education of peers, better to post a new publication that you or your group just came out with, or somewhat another group's publication that you're just interested in and want to share the results, or better to post a new technique that no one's heard of yet because you just invented it or you're vetting it, or better to post a case series, or better to post, hey, I'm presenting at the San Diego shoulder course this week, come see me. What, what's the best type of peer post where you want to hit your fellow orthopedic surgeons? 
Isn't letter E all of the above one of the options? <laughs> I there? Well, I think all are important, but there's probably some that um, some surgeons may say, you know, I don't want to post that I'm going to a meeting because it doesn't, I don't know, it looks cocky that I'm posting about this or I'm posting about another publication. Now, I think dissemination of this type of information is great, but there are some, I would say, older school surgeons who just think that this is all ridiculous and we don't need to do it. And that's not how they did it back in their day. So I guess the question is, are there better strategies for affecting your or impacting or influencing your colleagues? Matthew, is there any data on this or what are your thoughts after doing some research on this topic? Yeah, there isn't data on specific types of posts. Uh, I will give you my personal opinion and I'll second Paul all of the above. And it's specifically, it's what, what you're posting has to have an audience. So I guess you, as the poster, have to think, what audience do I want to get this out to, essentially? So, you know, if Pat's going to post an amazing study he just did about uh, total shoulder, reverse total shoulders and lateralization, then he's aiming at people out there that are doing total shoulders and maybe he wants to help improve outcomes for patients, right? So lateralize more, uh, you know, versus if he's promoting San Diego shoulder, he's going to put the, the conference up there. Or if Paul comes up with a really cool novel way that, you know, you're going to fix a rotator cuff and he wants to share it or get opinions, it's going to be specific for that. And then you can also pick which type of media you want as well. So if you're going to do, you know, Paul's going to do his new cuff repair, probably more of a video or a picture versus if you're going to talk more about an individual journal article, probably less likely to just be, you know, a video and maybe a snapshot of summary or whatnot. So very individual, very tailored. I don't know the answer, Rachel, but I, I'll tell you what I do. Um, so I will post uh, videos to ViewMedi, and every time I take that video, I post the same video to YouTube, but I re-narrate in a very lay-term um, vernacular. You know, this is this is how we repair a rotator cuff tear. Here, you you know, versus these technical terms, um, and then. You know, for me, for Instagram, I primarily look at that as a patient base. And I think the, you know, the secondary gain is perhaps other physicians. So I try to be, I try to use non-technical terms. I'm sure I, you know, overcomplicate it. It's interesting though. I mean, Rick Matson's been, was doing a blog on shoulder arthritis. He's been doing for how many years now? And I think he has an insane amount of viewers and he's very technical and he basically just dissects papers and states what the authors found and what they do that I, in words, in language that I often find, you know, above the, above uh, the standard vocabulary of the lay person, but yet it's very effective for him. So there's clearly, clearly an audience that's looking for that outside of us. Sorry, Matson on his, uh, his uh, blog you were talking about, Pat, as of three weeks ago, had over 2 million views on that blog. So there's a lot of people following and listening to what Dr. Matson has to say. There you go. Pioneer like always. He's the man. Massey guys, have you ever had a social media post that you've taken down or that you regret posting? Because we all learn through things we'd rather do different, um, whether it be cases that we've done, patients that we've seen, et cetera. Has there ever been a post that you've put that you've taken down for whatever reason and any advice for our, 
our listeners on do's and don'ts in that regard? Let's start with Paul. I, I, you know, I'm sure that'll happen tomorrow now that you've asked the question, but I've really been very tempered and, and I dip my foot into the water very, very slowly. And I still continue to move slowly in how I post. Uh, so, and I've stayed very far away from my personal beliefs uh, on the world or, or family or friends. Patrick, how about you? Your thoughts on that? Have you ever had to take something down or felt like you needed to take something down? I was going to just, I was going to almost say no, but you know, I, I did at one point during something of COVID or something post something that, that I did take down of, that was political. And, uh, um, but other than that, I've, anytime it's been medical, I've tried to be very, um, very careful with think, using what you said as the test ahead of time. And, um, I'll even be careful about, liking other other things that have anything to do with political at all. I just, I try to stay away from that. Matthew, how about you? Any thoughts here? Anything you've had to take down or you, you took down just because you felt like you needed to? Um, I, I have taken one down, but it wasn't personal. It wasn't political. It was the fact that what you put on social media is how you present yourself to all your patients. So for me, back in the day when I started doing orthopedic surgery, when I started social media five or six years ago, I had this weird niche and I did percutaneous SI fusions, which no one else did. And um, it was from a lot of trauma training at William Beaumont. We just did a lot of SI screws and somehow they wound it up at my door. And now that I'm getting more and more shoulder focused with some sports, I actually had to take that post down from a couple of years ago because all these pain management SI joint patients started showing up at my door and I had to keep sending them away. So it was purely practice building or essentially filter of who I want coming in my door. And that was it. Well, and now I know who to send these cases to. So that's good to know. So thank you for putting that on our, our podcast. All shoulder and elbow listeners, send your SI fusion candidates over to Santa Barbara, right? I know a great guy to send them to. I'll totally point you in the right direction down in LA for sure. <laughs> all right. Speaking of posts, while we all post for our practices and for patient education and for surgeon and peer education, sometimes some of us do post personal things. So my example of this is before I had a social media or my practice, I actually don't have a social media. It's my practices, social media under Rachel Frank MD. But before I had that, my dog, Murphy, had an Instagram, which I made for him, for like all four of his followers, which are basically the owners of the dogs and his dog walking group. And it was a way for us to share things. But on occasion, probably not so infrequently, especially on Twitter, I'll share a picture of my dog on my Rachel Frank MD account. What do you guys think about sharing personal posts? family, family milestones, kids graduating, vacation pictures, dog, cat, whatever, pet pictures, stuff not related to your practice, stuff that may not educate your peers, but may be of interest perhaps to your patients to show them that you're a real person. Is this good, bad, indifferent? Matthew, let's start with you. What are your thoughts here? Uh, I, I would say it's indifferent and it's based on the poster. So personally, uh, I have um, personal Facebook and I have professional Facebook. I've got personal Instagram, which is locked out and I don't let everyone into and I have to accept your request. And then I have Matthew Pfeiffer MD Instagram. 
So I have, from the beginning, have always tried to keep family, family and professional, professional. That's just kind of how I am as a person. But some people have found that when you link your social life and your family life with your professional life, actually those posts that show the patients and the public who you are tend to get the most hits, ironically. So I think it's just based on your preference and the way you want to do it. I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, as long as obviously, you know, you're not posting anything negative or political or, you know, kind of like what we talked about before. But uh, it has been shown that if you approach prof uh, personal stuff, it can really up your professional page. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think I don't do it because I'm either too insecure or not interesting enough to want to post about my personal life. Um, but I agree. People can get to know you or get a sense of your personality or and, and I think people do want to know us. I, I just, uh, uh, I don't know that I have that, that, you know, social comfort um, that, that perhaps I would like to get one day, but I, I think it's indifferent, Rachel. I think it's all about what you want and how you want to sort of display your brand. And I think that generationally, maybe I fall on the older side where I recognize this as an important part of life in terms of having a professional brand and reputation, but I just haven't gotten to that point yet. Jen Weiss, good, my medical school classmate, my mom, uh, the surgeon, I mean, she'll post, she's an amazing woman, so she's so accomplished, and she'll post, you know, about her dog and her kids, um, and, and I chuckle because I think it's entertaining, so I, I don't think I have any judgment on that. Patrick, how about you? What are your thoughts? Keep keep the dogs out of it, and should I stop posting about Murphy, or, or what do you think here? So I think that um, if you do do it, it does humanize you a bit. I, I do do it. I mix it in uh, occasionally. I'll post pictures of outside somewhere or of my uh, of my kids. Um, you know, this is a discussion in the family. My my daughter is very much like you cannot post that unless you have my permission. I'm like you, you bet that's that's your right. Um, I try to I, I try to do that in a way to be, but I try to be careful about the same things that the other guys are talking about about avoiding bragging. I mean, I'm not one to post about my trip in Costa Rica and, you know, all these, uh, these, these cool things we're doing. I try to, you know, make it more of everyday things like playing soccer or skiing and, you know, things like that. But I, I think it does give a personal touch that people want to see, you know, the reality is it's, 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 it's uh, not real, you know, even though people want this quote unquote humanism, we all know that people are primarily showing things that are just positive, you know, so I think you got to walk that line. Super biased. I mean, social media is super biased and um, that's a very, very solid point. Now, one thing I really want to ask you guys, and I think I know the answer from each of you, just based on what I've seen from your social media accounts, as well as what we've discussed here on this podcast, but that's political posts or stuff completely unrelated to what we do as surgeons, but maybe not so unrelated because as surgeons, we have roles in patient advocacy and well-being and diversity advocacy, et cetera. So lots of surgeons post, including as recently as today, given the events of the world, their feelings on political issues. And you may agree with their feelings or disagree, and you may feel like you should like something or not like something. And the act of liking something speaks sometimes just as loudly as the act of not liking something if people are paying attention to that. So 
what are your thoughts? And again, this is polarizing because there are friends and colleagues of each of us that post on political issues. And so, and, and I don't know that any of them are wrong or right for doing so, but what are your thoughts on this as it relates to being a, a patient advocate um, combined with your own feelings? Paul, let's start with you on this one. So Rachel, that's an incredibly deep and, and long conversation and, and probably be good to have two or three drinks before I can really open up and tell you how I feel about it. But you cross so many lines. We're currently in, in a world where there's no truth, there's no facts, and they, those don't seem to be relevant. And you can just argue whatever point you want to argue and have a loud screaming voice. So the, the place for a sort of civil discourse, for me, is not necessarily going to be on social media, although it, if it were that, I'd love to. I, I would love to be able to sort of engage in that way. I, I worry that I'm going to alienate patients uh, because of a view I may or may not have. Um, and perhaps I'm being a little bit of a chicken uh, because I do have views and I do have opinions. I perhaps just tend not to want to share them just the same way as I'm not sharing a lot of my personal life. And maybe that'll evolve as I go on. Patrick, what are your thoughts here? Very conflicted. Um, you know, obviously having viewers, you definitely have some influence, right? And I feel conflicted about it because there's events that are happening right now. I mean, Ukraine, um, Roe v. Wade, um, the recent shooting in Texas. Those are things that all, um, I think, affect all of us different ways. And these are things that I have opinions about. But at the moment, I've remained a coward and stayed out of it because of my wanting to separate politics from my occupation. Um, I don't know if I'll still have that same view, you know, in a few years. Matthew, how about you? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I stay pretty neutral. I don't really uh, give out my uh, my opinions on anything too controversial on social media, even on my personal accounts. I just um, I've I have kind of you always have that one crazy person on Facebook from your high school that somehow befriended you. That's like way off the deep end. And on some level, I just never want to be that person that I judge too much. So that's probably part of it. And two, I just don't want to be controversial, kind of like what Pat said, you know, your opinions now, you know, may not be what they're different. I mean, you look at politicians, they'll dig up Twitter views from 10 years ago, uh, et cetera. So I've just always been conscious not to not to tread those controversial lines. And I, and I think, Rachel, the danger is that, you know, even if you do sort of state your opinion, there's so many people out there who make their lives on on, uh, on with vitriol and trolling other account. I mean, I remember I posted some of our studies that, that looked at how to reduce opiate use after acute surgery. And one or two people who really came after me said, I'll debate you in the open or the public. You don't do this right. And of course, we're speaking different languages. One's talking about chronic pain and I'm talking about acute pain. But there's no way that that's ever going to get sussed out or get solved for on you know on, on a short bite of information so I, I worry that people will, will just capitalize on on us trying to be thoughtful and fair the the problem that that i battle with internally about this is that it sounds like we're all moderates right and we probably all would say well okay i could see your opinion and i could kind of you know see where you're coming from here's what i would think but who's expressing the opinion is are the extremes on both sides. So there's this internal dialogue I have sometimes where I worry or think, am I doing a disservice by not, you know, giving an opinion? 
that's why I said I may not I may not stay the same way years from now. I don't know. I mean, but is it our responsibility at some point if you become an influencer, um, which I won't categorize myself as yet, but if you if you are that person, you know, do we have some responsibility, at least amongst physicians, uh, where you have some professional professional guys to stand on to to stand up for for things that you think are right? I would I would say, Paul, yeah, I mean, like especially if it's backed by science and if it's becoming a big social issue, such as I'm just going to throw like vaccinations for COVID, et cetera. I mean, if it's that type of an issue, I don't think it's as controversial, especially when it's backed by science in our medical community is, you know, you can always defend those types of things by, Hey, I am a, I'm a scientist. I'm a physician. What I do is, I try to base it on, you know, results and science as much as possible. This is why I have this opinion. So just for one example. Yeah, I think it's so hard. I think whatever we put out there is permanent. You know, even if you delete it, it can be found. Um, you will, because opinions are just that, they're opinions. You will always isolate some people while potentially appealing to others. And it depends on who's the most opinionated in terms of what the ultimate result of that opinion will be. And I think... You know, for me personally, just right now, the whole, um, I don't even want to say issue, it's much more than an issue, but everything associated with Roe v. Wade is really as a woman and as a physician, it's pulling at my heartstrings not to post something. But for the reasons that you guys all just highlighted, I've chosen at least right now to act a coward and, and just keep my political views separate from my professional social media accounts. Uh, but I think this is something that will social media is not going anywhere and our need for instant access and instant gratification as a society is certainly not going anywhere. And so I think that this is only going to become a bigger and bigger issue as our, our world in the U S and globally gets more politicized. Um, so, so coming attractions for all the young surgeons out there getting ready to start their social media accounts. Let me keep on this um, slightly somber mood as we wrap up just a couple more questions. What do you guys do with negative posts, negative reviews, patient posts to me. Rachel Frank is the worst surgeon I've ever had. My knee has never felt worse. I wish I never had surgery with her. What do I do with that? That's not necessarily social media because it's more of a health reviews website or platform, but it can come up on social media. People could certainly tag you or post, post about you. So what should I do in that regard? Or what if you guys have never had bad reviews, but hypothetically speaking, say you were to have, what would you do with that? Matthew, let's start with you. Um, I think there's, you brought it up, there's reviews such as Google reviews um, that can be negative. And then there's also interactions on social media. And I've had both. Um, and there's actual articles written about this and what you do. And I think the first thing uh, is to try to take a step back, give it 24 hours. Don't get emotional. Don't try and do an emotional response. Um, and then you always try and apologize and give the patient the benefit of the doubt on a review and kind of say, I wish you had a better experience. And it also kind of becomes, you know, the level of how bad they go after you. I've actually uh, had a personal experience where on social media, there was a, a, a homeopathic person that kept saying everything I did was a sham and you should just do like essential oils or something. And the good news about that is on social media, you can block some of these people. And I have had to block a couple of people that thought their uh, cuffed hair, massive cuffed hair could be fixed with uh, essential oils and acupuncture and berated me because of what I do. So 
I'll leave that one there, and I want to hear uh, what the other guys do. So, Pipes and Rachel. Rachel, one, one, I want to apologize. I, you did a good job on my, my knee. I just, I'm sorry I posted that about you. <laughs> my bad. I mean, I tried. I really tried to fix that perfectly normal knee that you kept saying was 10 out of 10 pain. But, you know, I just did the operation, and it just didn't work. Paul, did you like the mint essential oil or the um, wheatgrass one? Which one worked for you? That's what I want to know. You know, again, you'll have to read my blog to see. But you know, <laughs> uh, what I've learned is that you need to drown a bad review with good reviews. So that if you have 400 good reviews and one or two bad reviews, those really are going to just filter to the bottom and, and people should have the sense to, to – uh, to sort of see through what's there. Now that said, it sort of leads into, well, how do you assess the reviews? And it comes to this sort of uncomfortable situation where how do you encourage people who've had a good response or had a good result with you to post their reviews? And and we, you can give them a small card. You can have sort of a business card. So listen, I hope you've had a good experience and hand it to them. Uh, there are some of my friends who say, look, if it's not done in the office at that time, you just, you don't get them. So they'll hand them an iPad right there and say, listen, if you don't mind before you leave, doing a one minute review. So those are the, that's, that's the strategy that I know best. Drown it with good. Patrick, your thoughts. Yeah. What, what Paul said is absolutely true. So in today's world, I think you have to have some effort in your practice to get reviews because many people will have positive things to say, but they won't necessarily post that unless you solicit it. Um, but so then what do you do if there's a negative review? You know, if it's a bad rating and they say, I waited a long time or whatever, you just leave it because we all know that people aren't perfect. And actually, there's some stuff that says people don't like somebody who's five out of five stars. They want somebody who's somewhere between, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's between like 4.3 and 4.8 or something like that. Um, you know, if it is inappropriate and slander, then if it's Google, you report it. If it's social media, you delete it. All right, let's get to a happier note. Present parties excluded. All right, present parties excluded. Who is your favorite physician, whether it's orthopedics, outside orthopedics, that you follow on social media and why? Matthew, let's go with you first. <laughs> All right, so my favorite is a, an internal medicine guy. His name is Z Dog MD. And if you don't know this guy, He's got like half a million followers. He's a hospitalist and he's a rapper, believe it or not. And this guy dresses up like Darth Vader. And that is my favorite thing ever is essentially he uh, dresses up like Darth Vader and it's a satire on everything that stresses us out and cause us burnout and contemporary medical issues. So uh, Z-Dog MD, if you want uh, a good entertainment, a good laugh as well. And you're a nerd that likes Star Wars. <laughs> this guy, this guy, Dr. Kofman, is just so funny. He does these, these, you know, he's an ophthalmologist, but he makes fun of orthopedics and he makes fun of emergency medicine. You know, the, the ED guys all have their bike helmet on whenever he talks about them or puts them on. It's really, it, it's quite funny. That guy is hilarious. He just gave our medical school graduation speech this year. He came and there are medical students that matched into emergency medicine all wore instead of their graduation hats. They all wore bike helmets. It was so funny. He's hilarious. Patrick, how about you? Who do you like to, to follow and, and read from and learn from, et cetera? Yeah, I don't actually really enjoy following like any physician specifically. I mean, I like seeing some of what everybody, you know, our colleagues, I like seeing the, 
you know, the personal post every once in a while. Um, but I enjoy more of getting these little bit of philosophical tidbits. I follow this guy, Naval Ravikant, for in instance. And, uh, you know, the reality is as much as I want to read a book, I'm busy. And so I, like many people, will consume information, this little quick hit, and give me something to think about for the day. What about you, Rachel? Well, I like uh, the ones that you and, and Paul mentioned for sure, um, but I'm in it for the French Bulldogs. So I like we rate dogs. I know we, I asked the question about physicians, but I, I like we rate dogs. Um, let me ask you guys any parting as we wind up, because we've gone close to an hour and I'm sure we could all continue talking about this for another hour because there's so many layers to this onion. But any final thoughts on social media as shoulder surgeons, as sports medicine surgeons, as prominent leaders in our field? for our listeners here on the ASCS podcast. Paul, let's start with you. Any final words of wisdom on social media? Uh, someone someone wrote something the other day and they said, look, if you don't have a mentor that's 15 or 20 years younger than you, you're probably missing out on a whole sector of being educated in life. And I, and I believe that, you know, having younger people mentor us on how to be involved in social media is going to allow us to stay relevant and connected. Patrick, how about you? Your thoughts? I think your onion analogy is perfect because you, once you open up this can of worms, there's a lot there. So if you're not prepared to really dive into it, I'd probably just stay out of it. All right. And Matthew, any departing words of wisdom for our listeners here? Um, I got a great quote, and this is from uh, Stephen uh, Moran, who is uh, a big uh, UFC orthopedic surgeon in LA. And I've actually become friends with him over social media and I told him I was using him in the, the shoulder talk. And he said, man, this is great because social media is word of mouth on steroids. So just think of that uh, as far as what I recommend. I recommend you using it to stay relevant and to build your practice. Uh, use it your way and then use it with moderation because it is addicting. They're actually built to be addicting, which is why society is what it is. So unless you're truly going for influencer status, you know, try and keep it at moderation. And like I said, I try and limit myself uh, professionally to about 30 minutes a week. And even me as an independent guy, I don't have fellows, I don't have residents, I do all this on my own. It's really helped my practice and it's doing it's doable. Well, I really want to thank each of you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast, but appreciate all of our guests spending their time and time away from family and practices to educate our ASCS and other listeners. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for my co-host, Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.